0: Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop: Preventing Chemotherapy-Induced Nausea and Vomiting. That's and really such an important concept—preventing, uh, preventing this. You're going to hear all of our speakers talk about this. Um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and really, and really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the topic today that we have over 485 participants on the call today. And you come from all of the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, India, Ireland, Singapore, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call, um, and uh, we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. And today's program is supported by Abdi and Helson, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawler, and Dr. Grawler is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grawler is going to address um, why some chemotherapy agents cause nausea and vomiting, communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and how healthcare teams approach prevention of nausea and vomiting. So it's my pleasure now to turn this prog- program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Growler.
2: Well, hello to all, and uh, thank you, Carolyn. I appreciate it. It's great to be with you today. Um, So I'm Richard I'm a medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein uh, Cancer Center here in New York. Uh, I have the pleasure of introducing the program, uh, and we deal with a very common concern for patients getting anti-cancer therapy, and that is the prevention of nausea and vomiting. Carolyn has asked me to review briefly a few topics as a background for the program, and these include, as she mentioned, why chemotherapy can cause nausea and vomiting, and to give a brief outline of current approaches, to discuss how healthcare teams approach this issue of preventing nausea and vomiting, and first of all, why is communicating with your healthcare team a priority? Why, communicate, uh, why concentrate on communication? I can think of several reasons, but a couple of major ones are, first of all, to individualize care, and uh, I hope you'll see in my presentation and those of my colleagues that this is really key. The short answer is so that your care can have as positive an effect as possible and will contribute to preserving and improving quality of life, and the second is to maximize benefit. There are remarkable changes occurring in cancer care, including new modalities of treatment and new ways to prevent side effects. And these have really occurred, many of them, over uh, just the past several years. It's fair to say that we're in an evolutionary period of how to maximize the benefit of these newer methods, and supportive care, such as the prevention of side effects and nausea and vomiting, is at least as individualized and complicated as anti-cancer care. So there's a new term that you may hear which is precision medicine. There are many definitions of these of this, but one that I think works quite well comes from the National Institutes of Health in the US and it states that precision medicine is an emerging approach for disease prevention and treatment that takes into account people's individual variations in genes, environment and lifestyle. So if we don't communicate, it is very difficult to be aware of risks and opportunities for uh, for doing well. And there's a new term also called PROs, or patient-reported outcomes. This reflects that in many areas, only through patient and family input can we really understand the issues that need to be addressed and how successful we're being. Of course, in many instances, your doctor or nurse may raise the issue, but there's no reason to stand on ceremony. It's fine to bring it up first. In fact, it's appreciated. Physicians and nurses, social workers, pharmacists, among others in oncology spend a great deal of time educating themselves about the best approaches to these problems. And they do so often through their oncology organizations, ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology, ONS, the Oncology Nursing Society, MASC, Multinational, Association for Supportive Care in Cancer, Cancer Care, and many others. And these organizations convene panels of experts to review the most significant information, and uh, these then result in guidelines or guidance that take the best quality evidence and uh, then help guide your health care team. I know that Ms. Clark Snow will have much more to say about this important topic as well. Patients and families have told us the control of nausea and vomiting with chemotherapy is at or near the top of their concerns. That's why it's really worth our discussing this important issue, an area in which great progress has been made and where nausea and vomiting can be prevented really for the majority of patients uh, by all means. So, um, you know, we don't get very good uh, information on this from Television magazines, newspapers, movies and uh, but we do much better today than those uh, those organs would tell us about so why is it that nausea and vomiting can occur with chemotherapy? in fact it 's not an abnormal response it 's a normal protective response. chemotherapy, medicines are foreign substances. the body evolved to sense foreign substances that we may ingest. Um, Of course, instead of taking them by mouth, we're getting these often intravenously, but sometimes by mouth. And so this then sets off a bunch of reflexes within the body. We have sensors or receptors in the gut. Um, So when you swallow something, there are sensors that uh, can tell that a chemical is doing this, but also we have sensors in the brain which monitor chemicals that have come into the body and have gotten into the bloodstream or into the cerebrospinal fluid, not just in the, sup, uh, in the stomach. It's a tricky but important protective reflex. And it would be great if we could just turn it off when it's not needed. And that's why we want to prevent nausea and vomiting by giving medicines that can turn off this response uh, for a brief period of time. Uh, the time in which one is getting chemotherapy. So we learned that there are important sensors or receptors that um, in the GI tract and brain, some of these are serotonin receptors, and uh, that's why some of the drugs are Cetron drugs that affect serotonin and can block the response. There's another pathway that's associated with a small natural protein transmitter called substance P, and this pathway has the funny name of the NK1 or neurokinin type 1, and this is another important pathway, and sometimes in combination, we need to prevent both of those. And there's even an older class of medicines related to cortisone called corticosteroids, And they can have an important role for many people also. I know Dr. Schwartzberg will go into more detail about the use of medicines to prevent nausea and vomiting in particular. And we also learned that there are two clear needs, preventing what's called acute emesis, acute nausea and vomiting, which is on the day of actual treatment, and there's usually a delay period of a few minutes uh, 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 to a few hours. And the second is... Delayed emesis, which can occur in the days following chemotherapy, even if one did well on the day of treatment. So taking medicine to prevent uh, nausea and vomiting a couple days after chemotherapy can be very important as well, even if you're feeling well. And we know that there are individual risk factors. First is the actual chemotherapy that's being given. Next is a person's gender. For some reason, it's more difficult to control nausea and vomiting in women than men. In people's age group, it's more difficult to control nausea and vomiting in younger people than in older people. And there are several more as well. But the chemotherapy, the gender, and the age group are three really important ones. So based on these and some other factors, your health care team can help individualize your preventive medicines for nausea and vomiting. Should a person get just one anti-nausea medicine, two, three, sometimes even more? Should prevention include a Cetron, an NK1 agent, or a corticosteroid, or even some other medicines? And that's the way we can individualize care by understanding these issues and these factors in each person. The Cetrons and the NK1 antagonists are focused on one very specific pathway each. But recent, recently, adding less focused medicines may have some potential benefit for some people as well. Newer approaches even include how the antiemetics are given. There are oral medications, including the use of a single pill given just once that can be useful for many individuals, or should the medicines be given by intravenous uh, uh route right before the chemotherapy, or perhaps continued the days afterwards. All of these are answered by the individual factors for each person, and your healthcare team is very familiar with these. All of these topics, including more on communication, research, and steps that you should be aware of will be addressed by my colleagues in the next few presentations. Carolyn? Oh,
1: thank you so much, Dr. Gralla. As always, this is really wonderful and very informative. And I also want to just uh, thank Dr. Gralla for actually really um, helping to orchestrate today's program in terms of of selecting these wonderful speakers in addition to himself. So I really want to thank you as well, Dr. Grella. And our next speaker is Dr. Lee Schwartzberg. Dr. Schwartzberg is Executive Director, West Cancer Center, Chief, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Professor of Medicine, University of Tennessee Health Science Center. Dr. Schwartzberg is going to address current research directions to improve control of and vomiting, new agents, and preventive strategies. It's my pleasure to uh, turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Schwartzberg.
3: Thank you, Carolyn. It's a great pleasure to be here with my colleagues and with you and with the audience to, today to discuss this really important topic. And Richard did a wonderful job of uh, setting the stage and giving a terrific overview of the current state of preventing nausea and vomiting. And I think for everyone on the phone, it's very important to understand that oncologists and nurses and your entire healthcare team are working to try to prevent you from getting nausea and vomiting. And we have many of the means now for most people to uh, obviate these symptoms, but not all. And we're continuing to work to develop additional drugs To eventually get to our goal, where no one would have to uh, experience nausea or vomiting after chemotherapy. As we're developing new agents, some of them continue to have nausea and vomiting as one of the toxicities that we see. And we hear a lot about the uh, many new agents and the types of uh, therapies that are coming out, and we're very excited about them. But, as Dr. Gralla said, the backbone of delivering chemotherapy has to be that it can be done in a safe and effective way, and hopefully not uh, impact the quality of life for the patient. So that's equally as important as well. I'm going to go into a little more detail about <coughs> the topics that have already been uh, surfaced in the first talk. And the one other thing I want to add is that typically when we develop drugs, we characterize the uh, type of nausea and vomiting that any particular chemotherapy drug or combination can uh, can cause into groups. And they're rough groups, and there's a grade in each of those groups, but it's useful both in a research setting and in a clinical setting to aggregate uh, different types of chemotherapy into a group of the uh, capacity for developing emesis. So We have the highest level group of chemotherapies called highly emetogenic chemotherapy, meaning in the absence of the medicines we now have available, it's very likely for people to get sick from them. There's a large group of moderately emetogenic uh, chemotherapy, which the chance of getting sick in the absence of therapy is somewhat less, and then there's a lower group, and then there's a minimal group where we we don't see it at all. Well, most of the agents we use today, and we'll probably be using for some time to come, even with the advent of newer modalities of therapy, are in the moderately or highly uh, uh categories, and therefore, we need to have specific approaches to each of those. Guideline committees review the evidence based on the research and then make recommendations. And we have guidelines from uh, the Multinational Association of Supportive Care in Cancer, which all three of us are uh, part of. We have NCCN guidelines, ASCO guidelines. All of them are useful. All of them are really very similar to each other in terms of their categorization of what type of anti-nausea drugs to use for different levels of potential nausea and vomiting. So for the highly emetogenic chemotherapy, we typically use a, as Dr. Growl alluded to, a combination regimen of three drugs or four drugs. That includes a five, five HT3 receptor antagonist. That's the cetrons that were mentioned. That uh, a very important n- transmitter in the brain. That toxic agents that are ingested or or in the blood uh, trigger for that reflex of nausea. And the second one is, as was mentioned, is the NK1 receptor antagonist. And the third is the corticosteroid, which is uh, has a general effect on uh, the central nervous system and the triggering of the nausea and vomiting reflexes. So those three types of agents have uh, been characterized to be used for highly emetogenic chemotherapy, and those are drugs like cisplatin, or a combination of Adriamycin and cyclophosphamide which is very commonly used in breast cancer treatment. And many of you may be familiar with one of those. More recently, research has determined that another platinum drug or platinum drug called carboplatin has the potential for nausea and vomiting almost as high as cisplatin and therefore we're now the guidelines are all recommending Uh, so-called triplet therapy, uh, pick an agent from each of those categories uh, to combine given right before the chemotherapy so that we can prevent the nausea and vomiting in both the acute and the delayed phase, which Dr. Grala mentioned. Now, those drugs work very well in highly metagenic uh, chemotherapy and a moderately metagenic chemotherapy, two or three drugs for both of those groups. Um, But still, nausea has been a problem. So recently, we have done research on other drugs that have looked at potentially decreasing nausea, and one of them is an old drug called olanzapine, um, which was used for other reasons. At low doses, olanzapine can be a very effective drug to reduce nausea. So there are some patients who can benefit from a four-drug combination given. Olanzapine is given slightly differently It is given, um, it's an oral agent, so a pill that you take for the day of the chemotherapy and then for several days afterwards, and that protects, helps protect that five-day period where um, the nausea and vomiting from chemotherapy tend to occur most frequently. Within the categories, there have been, over the last few years, uh, substantial advances in the Uh, 5-HT3 receptors and the NK1 receptors. So we now have several different agents that are available. Um, Going back 25 years, the 5-HT3 receptor antagonist transformed our ability to give uh, agents like cisplatinum, which would otherwise cause vomiting in almost everyone. And that was the first major advance. And we've made further advances with the 5-HT3 antagonists over the last uh, decade or so. Uh, for example, drug palonosetron, a so-called second-generation cetron, which has a longer activity and has uh, biochemical and pharmacologic properties that are somewhat different from the other drugs, and allows uh, a higher efficacy. And we also have older drugs, <coughs> excuse me, re-rebundled in different ways and different delivery systems. So we have a subcutaneous. Uh, version of uh, an older setron called grinisetron, which is uh, delivered in a, um, a vehicle that allows a slow release into the uh, circulation and also has shown to be better than the previous first generation setrons. Uh, so we have that group uh, where we're doing very well uh, targeting the 5-HG3 receptor. The NK1s, we now have additional NK1s. We've... Uh, We have uh, three that are currently available, um, a fosaprepitant and a prepitant, an IV and an oral version. Um, There's uh, relapitant, which was initially developed as an oral version, and then an IV version. There's been some problems. The IV version has been uh, taken off the market temporarily to to reformulate. And uh, we have uh, natupitant, which is available in a fixed combination with palonosetron as uh, NEPA, the combination capsule, which can be given together. So two drugs given together, uh, which offers convenience currently available in the United States uh, only as an oral form and IV form being developed as well. So again, to emphasize what Dr. Gralas said, the idea is to have convenience for patients, have oral and intravenous forms of drugs available depending on the practice setting and depending on reimbursement issues and other issues um, that will allow patients m- much latitude in the best way to get their preventive therapy. Um, we expect additional agents to be coming out as we learn more about the neurotransmitters that are involved in uh, the development of nausea and vomiting. As Dr. Grala said, this is a very primitive reflex and the the nervous system has many redundancies built in. So we're trying to use both very specific drugs, as we've talked about, as well as more generalizable drugs that work on a lot of receptors like olanzapine. Many of uh, people have asked recently about the use of cannabis, and uh, that's an area of active uh, investigation. We don't have very good... uh, clean research on that yet. But we do know that there are cannabinoid receptors in the central nervous system, and they play a role in nausea as well. So we're hopeful that over the next few years, we'll be able to develop drugs that uh, specifically potentially target those receptors, as well as a host of others that potentially could be playing a role, particularly as it relates to nausea, which we think is qualitatively somewhat different than vomiting, uh, where we have done a very good job at preventing vomiting, but we still have this residual nausea, even with the four-drug program that I mentioned before. Finally, I just want to emphasize again the idea that uh, patient-related characteristics are very important beyond the chemotherapy. So while we stratify the chemotherapy into categories of higher or intermediate or lower risk by themselves, Patient factors, as Dr. Grala mentioned, also play a role. And uh, there have been models created in, in the last year or two, better models, of trying to put all these factors together so that it's easy to integrate them in, uh, using a formula to help predict whether the risk shades up or shades down based on the, uh, the features of the patient, including age and gender, as you heard, and some historical features like uh, the the potential for um, whether uh, in a woman, for example, there was emesis associated with pregnancy or motion sickness. Uh, alcohol is, uh, exposure is another important factor that we know, which can, um, can actually reduce the risk of emesis. And uh, sleep uh, disorders can also seem to play a role in that. So there is pro- steady progress in developing a risk model for patient factors, which can aid... Uh, on top of the risk, the factors that come from the chemotherapy alone. And uh, with that, I'll I think I'll turn it back over to Carolyn.
1: Oh, uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Schwarzbeck That was really wonderful and very informative. Lots of tips for people, and I know, they'll the questions for you during the Q and A. And our next speaker is Ms. Rebecca Clark Snow. Uh, Ms. Clark Snow is an oncology nurse, and um, she's um, on- she's an oncology supportive care consultant, and uh, Miss. Um, Clark-Snow will be addressing the role of the oncology nurse in preventing side effects and the importance of clinical trials. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Rebecca Clark-Snow.
4: Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you, Dr. Growler and Dr. Schwartzberg. Uh, It's a pleasure to be able to speak this afternoon on behalf of oncology nurses, research nurses, and research coordinators. Um, First and foremost, oncology nursing's main priority is to provide compassionate care and guidance for all patients and, and all those that are involved in their care. Uh, we serve as the primary resource for patients regarding scheduling assessments, treatment appointments, translators when necessary. Um, we answer questions regarding insurance, uh, transportation concerns, schedule second opinions, uh, questions regarding when Um, it would be possible to return to work uh, completing SNLA paperwork, just to name a few responsibilities. Um, Your initial visit may be with a clinical nurse coordinator, or more recently institutions have uh, instituted the new position of nurse navigators, uh, and possibly with a research coordinator. Um, With that initial visit with a physician, um, you will collaborate and you'll meet with the physician and the nurses will collaborate with physicians, pharmacists, social workers, dietitians. And we participate in a multidisciplinary team approach like Dr. Grawler and Dr. Schwartzberg mentioned to execute a comprehensive care plan uh, that may include plans for surgery, chemotherapy, or, or even radiation treatment. Uh, every attempt is made to assure that medical records are complete and ready to re- be reviewed by the physician. That includes obtaining outside records, copies of pathology reports, slides, CT scans, everything that's needed in order for the physician to make a really comprehensive uh, and inclusive care plan. If treatments include chemotherapy, the oncology nurse will meet with patients and caregivers Usually after a treatment plan has been discussed thoroughly by the oncologist. Orders are are written and reviewed by pharmacy, and not only includes chemotherapy dosing, but also recommendations for anti nausea medications based on institutional guidelines, which you just heard are so important for making sure that our patients receive appropriate treatment. At this time, it's important to review, if possible, any medical history that perhaps was not made available to the physician previously. Uh, And this may include possible risk factors, which you just heard um, from Dr. Gralla and Dr. uh, Schwartzberg, Um, history of anxiety and sistering pregnancy and alcohol consumption and others. Time permitting, this may also be the ideal time to discuss patient expectations regarding chemotherapy, whether there are concerns about chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, how receiving treatment may affect their quality of life, and their ability to work during treatment and care for their families, because many of our patients do, in fact, receive their treatments while trying to coordinate work uh, and, and treatment at the same time. Providing as much information as possible, both written and verbally, about the chemotherapy, its potential side effects, and not just nausea and vomiting, but potential side effects for all the medications that are going to be administered. Um, It's an important component of the patient-nurse relationship. Equally important is assuring that patients and family members have a good understanding of how and when to take anti-nausea medications. Uh, after treatment, and at home if prescribed by the physician for that possible delayed emesis phase, which was also mentioned just recently. Providing a calendar with each medication clearly listed, noting the dose, the date, and the time that should be taken can make it easier for patients and loved ones to adhere to the prescribed treatment plan. Contact information including phone numbers of healthcare providers who may be called in the event of an emergency or just to ask questions is essential. I also believe it's important to take time to make follow up phone calls to see how patients are doing in the days following treatment. By keeping in touch, we can make sure that everyone will have the best opportunity to have excellent outcomes after treatment. Because chemotherapy will be given over several cycles in most instances, opportunities to follow up with patients will be done at subsequent clinic visits, which will be additional opportunities to find out how treatment was tolerated and if any adjustments to dosing or timing of treatments will be required. Once again, these are perfect opportunities to, to continue the dialogue with patients and family members, and review any updated information provided by the treating physician. As Dr. Grawl and Dr. Schwartzberg mentioned, it is always our goal to prevent or lessen side effects whenever possible so that our patients can continue with daily activities. I'd like to switch gears just a bit now and discuss the importance of clinical trials. Your physicians will discuss the possibility of participating in the clinical trial if he or she feels it's appropriate. Clinical trials allow patients to receive medications that are being researched to treat a specific diagnosis, or they may be medications that may prevent or treat side effects of chemotherapy. Both Dr. Grawler and Dr. Schwartzberg have been involved in the research of medications to treat cancer as well as medications to prevent chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting for many years. It's important that patients and loved ones understand that after receiving information about a clinical trial, including the benefits and risks of participating, it is the patient who ultimately decides to participate by signing an informed consent. The research nurse or research coordinator assures that all criteria have been met and that patients are eligible to participate. It will also be explained what expenses will be covered by the trial sponsor and what will be billed to the patient's insurance company. Generally, anything that's billed to the insurers is considered to be standard of care. And are assessments such as CT scans and labs that would be ordered by your physician as part of routine care. Each patient's insurance company is also notified in advance to assure that they are in agreement with the clinical trial treatment plan. Advantages for patients who participate in clinical trials are many, and these are just a few. It may provide access to new medications or regimens not yet approved by the FDA. Patients are monitored very closely by the treating physician, clinic nurse, and research nurse. And your participation may ultimately help others in the future who may have been given a similar cancer diagnosis. There are many resources available for patients and family members who would like to learn more about clinical trials, and these are easily found on the Internet. Just a couple of those of these are uh, www.cancer.gov. This is the National Cancer Institute site or the American Cancer Society site, which is www.cancer.org. The American Society of Clinical Oncology has a good site, um, and that's www.asco.org. They have resources for patients as far as finding a cancer doctor, information regarding types of, of cancer, patient education materials, financial resources, uh, and and how to best care for a loved one. Um, It's been my greatest honor to care for patients for more than four decades, and I encourage you to look to your care team for support and to administer the best care possible for you and your loved ones. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Kleksma. That was really wonderful, and just a wonderful call out to the role of oncology nursing and clinical trials, and both are uh, very important um, in, in your uh, care and, and the treatment of, of cancer. Um, I would like to say a few words now about just the, um, helping all of you with some of the perhaps practical and um, financial, emotional, and social issues that you may confront as you're coping with your cancer, with coping with um with um, the side effects of treatment. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization that provides a host of services to people, many of which I just mentioned, um, and they're provided by oncology social workers, all trained, master's-level trained social workers. And um, we do offer a, a help with of financial concerns with practical issues. Um, and we also help people. We talk to people on the phone um, or online. Um, about some of, and provide counseling services to them as well, and really, what is counseling services? it's really a chance to talk with someone who really listens to you, who really is systematically there for you to kind of help you uh, come to, to deal with some of the issues or concerns you may have, whether it be returning to work, coping with work during your treatment, talking with your children about about your cancer and how um, it may be affecting the family. Um, you know, really, um, just and also just how you feel yourself about your cancer and so many other issues. And also we work a lot with caregivers as well. Um we also have a number of support groups, and we do those on the telephone online, and we have at the moment over one hundred and twenty different online support groups. For those of you in the United States or internationally who really like the idea of participating in an online group, it's a wonderful way. These are 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, so that one can post and, and, and connect with people, and they're all facilitated by trained oncology social workers. Um, we also have, of course, um, these workshops that we offer over the year, um, many of these types of workshops on specific types of cancers, on dealing with treatment side effects, on coping with just going back to work, with legal issues and cancer, um, lots of different topics. And um, in addition to that, we also have very active publications that we, and fact sheets that we offer on our website and that you can download or that you can actually order from us directly. We, and lastly, I want to just talk about our children and teen and young adult program um, because those are really important. Of course, children and teens are often um, if, in living in families where there is cancer, and to some extent, they often um, don't. No one knows know, knows how to talk to them about that, and we do help with talking to children and teens about their cancer. And young adults may have cancer and um, may benefit from a support group or maybe a caregiver to a family member with uh, with uh, cancer. Um, and we also have an older adult program as well. So we cover the entire um, age spectrum of coping with cancer, and we also offer just a whole array of services so that um, they're free and um, they're simply a phone call away, and you can call us. Um, and those phone numbers and websites we'll be giving you when we send you the evaluation form. You'll get all that information and also all the information that um, Ms. Park Snow gave as well, and we'll have other, other resources as well for all of you. Now, with that all being said, we now have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask um, uh, uh, Crystal to tell everybody how to ask questions. And also, I'm going to ask questions on board to take questions from everybody.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered, and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question and again, ladies and gentlemen, that is star one to ask a question
1: and we have one a question in front of our online participants um and I'm going to give this question um start this question with uh um with Dr. Crowa. Um doctor so Dr. Galla, um, can anticipatory nausea and vomiting be treated the same way as acute or delayed nausea and vomiting?
2: Well it's a great question. By all means we didn't spend too long talking about it, but uh anticipatory nausea and vomiting is uh really what occurs if the control of nausea and vomiting wasn't so good on the prior or uh treatment cycle. And so what happens is you get conditioned. And uh it doesn't happen to everyone but it can happen. So it it brings up a couple of different problems. First of all, it's a natural conditioned response and um uh what happens is it's really motive- it's mediated through a different mechanism in the brain through through anxiety and other related aspects. So there are two main ways to treat it. One of which is uh some behavior therapy to decondition you, and there are psychologists who are quite good at this and some programs for doing that, and that can lessen the anxiety and therefore prevent the problem. And then the other way is using medicines that normally decrease anxiety. These are common um, sedatives or tranquilizers that have been used. It's usually a good idea to start these a couple of days ahead of time, Now, the other half of the issue is that when you get your chemotherapy, you still are then subjected, even if we can control the anticipatory nausea and vomiting, to the acute and delayed nausea and vomiting. So you need both an approach to anticipatory and then an enhanced approach to the nausea and vomiting that caused it to start in the first place. So if you sense this is going on or had problems uh, earlier, it's really something very important to discuss with the healthcare team.
1: And does anyone want to add to that? Thank you, Dr. Bell. That was wonderful. <laughs> any, other, any other thoughts in, in terms of that question? That's an important one. Okay. That was comprehensive. (laughs) Okay, very comprehensive. Okay, excellent. Um, um, And we have um, another question um, from one of our um, online participants, um, and um, Dr. Schwartzberg, if you could address this one. Um, Can I use over-the-counter anti-nausea medications to help with my um, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, or do I need to consult with a hospital staff before doing this?
3: That's another great question. So one thing we didn't mention since we were focused on prevention is what happens if you're one of the minority of patients that still has significant nausea that requires uh, some kind of therapy in that acute or delayed period of about five to seven days after the chemotherapy. In general, provider teams will prescribe what's called um, breakthrough medication, and that term is used to describe the situation where you get appropriate preventive therapy prior to the chemotherapy, but despite that, you still have um, nausea or enough nausea or and or vomiting that you really need to take something. And typically, uh, we'll use some of the older agents uh, like Compazine or some people use Finnegan. Some people will use one of the 5-HT3 receptor antagonists if they had had gotten the short acting form like ondansetron or or, or iV granisotron, uh early on, and um, all of those have modest benefits, but they can help uh, occasionally. Um, so it's important to have a breakthrough medicine uh, ready to go because you don't want to get into a situation where you start having if it's a minority of patients these days, but uh, occasionally people will get still get sick and you'd like to have the rescue medication at home uh, if possible. If you use a breakthrough medication, you have to use a rescue medication. It's very important to tell your team about it at the next cycle of chemotherapy because there are a couple of different strategies that could be taken. First of all, if maximal uh, prevention strategies were not used, we typically increase that in the next cycle for people that had to use rescue medication. So don't wait to be asked. Uh, Volunteer that information, and sometimes that could be three or four weeks after your chemotherapy, depending on when the next cycle is. Very important to communicate back to the team, whether they ask or not, I had to use rescue medicine or the breakthrough medicine that you gave me. I'm using those terms pretty much interchangeably. And, uh, therefore, that may cause a change in the types of drugs that are used in the prevention.
1: Excellent, thank you. And anyone wish to add to that? Or?
4: Yeah, if yeah. I may, Carolyn, I think it's okay. also, I, I totally agree with Dr. Schwartzberg. I also think it's important to check with patients and see what else is going on if they're taking other medications like pain medicines or antibiotics that may also possibly cause nausea and vomiting, or uh, if someone in the house is, is ill and perhaps they have contracted a, a, a GI bug, uh, and then share that information with you know your your physician or healthcare provider and 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 then have a better idea of, of what might be causing uh this prolonged nausea and vomiting so uh in addition to adding more uh antiemetics, I think it's it's not a good idea to investigate what other causes might be uh really adding to that problem.
2: And let me just add a, a, a couple of quick uh, comments. First of all, the uh, question, and I agree with everything that both of my colleagues have said, uh, one of the big problems is that over-the-counter drugs really aren't very effective for this problem. So you really, it, it is good, as Dr. Schwartzberg said, to have something that you might go home with, which is uh, a prescription medicine. And um, another thing to think about is that when um uh, when we have nausea and vomiting that's caused by something bad that we ate or something else, then sometimes the vomiting that can occur with that can clear up the issue because the bad substance is gone. But with chemotherapy, it stays in your body. So it's a little different than what most of us have experienced before. And Dr. Schwartzberg also brought up another very important point, is that it may be quite some time since you were uh, uh, you know, with your care team. So uh, please, uh, if you have an issue, do take good notes. Discuss it with your nurse, as uh, Ms. Clark knows, saying your doctor. But uh, unfortunately, the over-the-counter medicines aren't really too good for this purpose. Thank you. And just one thing
3: I'll add is that it's very important to communicate with your team Before you start your chemotherapy and let them know everything you're taking, particularly as uh, many people take vitamins and herbal medicines, there can occasionally be interactions with the chemotherapy. So make sure everything is disclosed, not just the prescription medicines that you have from other physicians or from your oncology care team, but also any um, any oral therapy that you're taking. Um, because those things can have effects specifically as it relates to chemotherapy and to the anti-nausea medicines we use.
1: Well, thank you. This is wonderful. And these are also such important, such important information for everyone to have. So thank you so much. Um, and uh, another question, and this one is for Ms. Clark Snow. Um, um, I'm a caregiver and would like to give my loved one's health care team an accurate report um, of his um CINV. What kinds of details should I make sure to write down? And the, another part to this, how can I ask my loved one about the severity or other qualities of the CINV, CINV in a sensitive way?
4: Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. I think, you know, it's it's been my experience over these past many years that um, patients and, and caregivers uh, caregivers especially um, are really very wonderful at, at keeping journals um, and logs of, of exactly what patients are experiencing. So if your loved one is, is having nausea and vomiting, I would make sure that I write down on a daily basis exactly what's going on, uh, how many episodes of, of vomiting he's had, when it occurred, what medications we're taking, um, your idea of how severe it is, um, and then just make sure that your that your loved one knows that you're really just trying to be there to support them, um, and uh, they can also help to, to to keep track of this as well when you're not available, and make sure that information is available to discuss with the physician and nurse, and if necessary, if it's if it's bad enough, you need to call in. Uh, before that next visit to see if something can be done um aside from the medications that have been ordered uh and that he he or she should be taking. I think the other important thing that I mentioned also during my talk is to make sure that your loved one is taking the medications uh as they have been prescribed um and that, you know, good nutrition um, is being followed whenever possible, that you're, he or she is drinking enough um, and getting up and moving around. I think all those are important things. But keeping track, keeping a little diary or even noting it on a calendar uh, are simple things that you can do to, to keep track of, of of how he or she is
1: doing. Excellent. Absolutely. And anyone else want to add to that? That's really Excellent.
2: Just to add to uh, what uh, Ms. Clark Snow has said, then uh, part of communication is making sure that you know how to get a hold of your healthcare team at various times, at different odd hours or right. working hours and the rest. So that's really a very important uh, part. You shouldn't leave the office area, the clinic area, without knowing those things. Very often, uh, practices will hand you uh, materials that have that listed and make sure it's all clear.
1: Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, this is really, these are wonderful questions, but also very comprehensive. And you can see the multidisciplinary team how important it is to ask your questions. Um, from different members of the team as well to really, um, and I, I wonder if everyone would just comment, a lot of our participants also live in many different areas of the country and world, and, and some live very far away from their treating healthcare care team, um, and um, so the question, and uh, following Dr. Grala's comments, um, if someone who lives very far away or just even close by, but doesn't, Feel comfortable calling between appointments? Could you comment on just that—that um, that that's welcome. That indeed, if there's a symptom, that you don't have to wait till your next appointment, which could be a month or two months from now, and um, and getting addressed right away. Could, could you say more about that, Dr. Gualla?
2: Well, you you've really said it exactly right. Uh, <laughs> if we're communicating correctly, then we we don't have a barrier. If it's something easy for you to take care of, or you'd like to, we'll find. But if you have a question or an issue. Uh, make sure you know how to do so, and uh, um, your doctor, your nurse, uh, the clinic will have uh, various ways of doing this, and um, there's no sense in suffering, and uh, we uh, would all like to help. You bring up a great point, Carolyn, and that is uh, um, uh, the three of us on this call all live in urban areas, but very often people live a great distance from their care, so uh it becomes even more important in knowing how uh to communicate and how to get to good care sometimes uh uh it would be uh working with another healthcare care team uh that you already may be familiar with, but it's always important to keep your primary oncology team uh in the loop and uh again as i said before don't stand on ceremony uh nobody wants anybody to suffer unnecessarily and, and i i'll I, just I,
3: emphasize I, that um, go ahead
4: oh i'm sorry i was just going to say it's 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 also important that your primary care physician uh has an idea of what your your your, your you've been receiving and what your treatment Absolutely. plan is i mean very often when clinic notes are written, the copy is sent to, to that physician so that he or she knows exactly what's going on. So, if you live a good distance away and can't get in touch with, you know, your oncology team, then you know your uh, PCP. If it's not something too serious, can hopefully, uh, you know, take care of that. If it's if it's a, a matter of um, ordering more pain medications, say, for example, that can easily be done rather than uh, calling your, trying to make a trip back to the, the, your institution where you're treated to pick up, up that prescription. So uh, you know, I think, you know, the, the health care team includes uh, that multidisciplinary care team that's in your primary institution, but also in your community physician uh, as well.
3: And I'll just add that, um, yeah, The um, when it comes to nausea and vomiting specifically, call earlier rather than delayed. And there are many patients out there who don't want to bother. But there are several barriers. First of all, um, thinking, well, this is going to pass and I don't want to bar- bother my team. Don't feel the way, as, as you've uh, you've heard um from Ms. Clark Snow and from Dr. Grala, we want to hear about it, and we'd rather hear about it early so we can intervene early and not allow suffering to continue. Because what happens occasionally, it's not that common, but it still happens, that patients get sick enough to go to the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And many of you probably know that if you go to the emergency room, the odds are fairly high that you'll be admitted to the hospital. And that's something we want to avoid. And in fact, with good communication and the ability to get care either locally if you're far away or to come in back to your uh, oncology care provider is likely to prevent the need for hospitalization for at least this side effect in most cases. <laughs> so th- that's something that's very important. The second is to use technology. Uh, around the world now, many people have access to a smartphone or similar device. And most practices have a portal or a way to communicate by email or text with one member of the oncology team. Frequently the infusion nurse or the physician nurse will, um, will give the patient their email or a text number to call. And that's a very convenient way. I must say that in my own practice, sometimes navigating the phone system uh, can be a bit frustrating because we're getting many hundreds of calls and they all have to be routed. So uh, that's another way around it to get more immediate attention, and it's worth. And although not every provider has that at this point, it's worth asking your team if that's uh, an acceptable mode of communication.
4: That's uh, true, and those are usually available and and work best during the week and not on the weekends, unfortunately.
2: And what my colleagues are mentioning also is getting around barriers, and uh, this is so important. There's another barrier that we haven't discussed, and that is that many people feel that you have to have nausea or vomiting for the chemotherapy to work, and that is not correct. That is not at all correct. There is no correlation Whatsoever, no association. So, no, uh, many people will suffer because they say, oh, that's just the price that uh, I have to pay for good results. It's not. The whole goal, as Ms. Clark Snow said, is to prevent these problems so that you can continue to be yourself and do what you need to. So, uh, no, uh, nausea and vomiting is not part of cancer care. We'd like it not to be at all. We, haven't, we don't have perfection. Uh, but we're trying to get there. So, as uh, Dr. Schwartzberg said, don't wait too long. Call, find out, and uh, see if if that can be helpful to you.
1: Excellent! Wow, this is really very wonderful and very helpful information to everybody. And um, the next question, um, and for Dr. Graul, is there anything I can do to decrease the envy before starting chemotherapy?
2: Well. Um, First of all, uh Miss Clarkson made the point of being well hydrated and uh being uh well nourished and uh that is true. Um and uh that's a good way to start. The other is knowledge and that is knowing so Dr. Schwartzberg mentioned that there are different risks to inherent in different chemotherapy. Understanding that Making sure you understand how to take the medicines to prevent emesis if there are medicines that you need to take as well. So, being well hydrated, understanding uh, the medicines that you have, the knowledge that you have, um, and uh, making sure that you have the tools, the medicines, and the, the knowledge ahead of time. I think those are the most important things. Excellent. Thank you.
1: And uh, questions then for Ms. Clark Snow. Um so, as my father's caregiver, how can I make sure there aren't medical complications such as dehydration, electrolyte imbalance, and physical damage to the esophagus? Could you comment on that in general way um just um things that uh, how
4: the question is how can she make sure uh, that he doesn't have electrolyte imbalances
1: and'm I'm sorry dehydration dehydration, and also mention physical damage due to to the esophagus? I'm not sure
4: okay, so. Once again, as Dr. Gralin and I mentioned, the dehydration part, we need to make sure that um, he is drinking enough throughout the day. It's it's difficult sometimes to do that when you are nauseated, so having something close by to sip on throughout the day is very important. Um, um, I think as far as electrolyte imbalances are concerned, you can't really – Figure that out at home. That's done when you get back to the physician's office and they draw blood. But one way to sort of offset that is to make, once again, make sure that he's well hydrated and eating properly. Um, If if that's done and and there's not significant nausea involving, then electrolyte imbalance really isn't an issue. and the question about the esophagus—are you—are they asking about lots of nausea involving and, and how that affects the yes,
1: esophagus? I yes, I think that would be the way. Yes.
4: Yeah. So once again, if 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 a patient's having lots of nausea and vomiting that is not being controlled or prevented by those medicines ordered by your physician, then. You really need to get in touch with that doctor's office as soon as possible because we we don't want patients to have esophageal tears. And that's something, that's an extreme case, um, but that would lead to hospitalization uh, and um, lost days at work and that type of thing. So if that's an emergency situation, if patients are having uncontrolled nausea and vomiting, not helped at all by the medications, and not able to keep down food or, or, or any liquids at all, then you really need to get in touch with your your physician's office as soon as possible.
1: Okay. Wow, well, this has been an enormous. This is a really amazing uh, call. I have to say, um, I have to say, I want to thank our speakers. who have been terrific. Just wonderful speakers. The best of the best, I think. Um, Ashley, um, and uh, I want to thank, uh, thank all of our participants who um, asked such great questions online and also all of you who have been listening as well. And I, I know there are more questions in queue, so I just want to get to all of that. If any of you have still questions, I know you do have questions still. Of course, your health care team is a wonderful place to start with, but I know many of you like to go other places to get information as well. We often recommend, um, and I think Ms. Park Snow gave this re- uh, reference to you, the, the National Cancer Institute um, their 800 number, um, their 800 one for Cancer, one 422 6237 or their website www.cancer.gov. And they have a live chat feature where you can actually post your questions, So that's really nice for people internationally as well, as well as U.S. to post your question, and they will help you uh, with answers. Um, we also did mention um, the American Cancer Society has wonderful resources as well, and you'll be getting that with your. Um, at the end of the program with your evaluation um, those additional resources to get um, your questions answered um, and of course cancer care as well um, and um, but I, of course your healthcare team is most important so really do um, always you know don't hesitate to contact your healthcare care team I think all of our speakers have stressed that throughout the call um, and um, I, I want to Remind all of you that we don't want anyone of you to feel that you're alone in coping with, uh, with cancer, with treatment side effects, with preventing uh, chemotherapy-induced treatments like nausea and vomiting. We want you to know that you're now part of a community of support. We're here to help you. And we are simply, Cancer Care is simply a phone call away or a mouse click away. You can simply contact us and, of course, your healthcare team. Um, very important that you recognize that although you have moments when you may feel alone, Nevertheless, there are a cadre of people out there to be of assistance to you, and please do take advantage of all those people. Um, we also have a number of programs coming up that may be of interest to you, and you'll be getting those um, in your uh, materials. But I do want to mention one that's happening on Wednesday that actually is. Um, having to do with taking your pills on schedule, on why it's important. And I think that might be one that might be very um, interesting to some of you on the call today. So it's on Wednesday. It is at a different time period. It's going to be from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern time. So that's a program that might be of interest to all of you. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.